Welcome to The Last Supper Talking Art, a weekly podcast featuring artists, collectors and gallerists in Asia. This episode is supported by Art Law Services, a boutique law firm that offers bespoke legal advice with offices in Amsterdam and Hong Kong. More information can be found on www.artlawservices.com. Hello everyone, I'm your host Oscar Vernhuis, a Dutch Korean artist based on Lama Island in Hong Kong. Today I have the pleasure of talking with Frank Dugan, a wonderful poet who is based here in Hong Kong. Frank reads a selection of his poetry and we discuss how he develops his narratives. We also talk about getting lost, what art is and the relationship between culture and intelligence. It's a very beautiful day outside and we are recording at my place on Lama Island, which is a first and you may be able to hear very faintly the island birds on the background. Thanks for coming over, Frank. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you, man. Very good. Um, really enjoyed the, the trip over. Beautiful weather. Today we are going to talk about your poetry, which you have never published and yet you have written poetry since you were a child. So let's start with a poem. Okay, so this one, which is called Unshelled, um, is really about the tyranny of sight in the sense that um, so much of what we see or do or um, experience or even love in our lives is determined by what it looks like. And so this was kind of a way of um, resurrecting the importance of the other senses. I thought. Anyway, <laughs> we'll see what it actually sounds like. So it goes like this. Take the pearl and put it back where the sun doesn't shine. Take the glinty coldness of teeth chipping iridescence and love it with your eyes. I want the oyster. I want the fleshy, oily, feely, smelly slipperiness of a being like you. The eyes can have the pearl. You have a stack of sheets with poems with you. I can see it in your hands. And I'm curious to find out why you chose this one to begin with. To be honest, um, because it's, um, I, th I think because it's, uh, I think because it's a little bit related to um, notions of art, um, and you know how much of art is claimed by what we see, by the visual, and I think that. You know, if you were a sommelier, you would probably find extraordinary art in, in the smell of um, an old um, Merlot. Um, but it would be hard to um, have that as a common description of what is artistic. Interesting you brought up wine. Do you have a glass when you write and create your poetry? <laughs> At precisely the moment I was writing this? <laughs> probably not. Probably not. And, and as much as any, if I um, write a poem, it gets rewritten like 20 times. Anyway, it just gets rewritten a lot, actually. I'm preparing myself for a long afternoon because I can see that you have many sheets of paper coming out of your shoulder bag. <laughs> okay, so um, this is uh, one that I, 
I shouldn't say that I like them, but I do. I like it um, because it's um, it's got a nice explanatory title, and it is to the man with his wife in a car in Shenwan on a Sunday. Now that's a little bit longer than some poems, but uh, what I wanted to do was I um, was work, work walking through um, Shenwan and I saw a guy. Um, nice big grey car and he looked really comfortable him and his wife and I kind of thought well yeah I, I get that so I wrote this I took the car for a walk carefully promenading my hands my hands with redundant power so masterfully light on the wheel I am at home in this womb I bought steeled in a substantial grey with this Myself and my wife on the way to almost nowhere and back to key the jacket of my muscular self into the cupboard parking lot where I kissed the bonnet once to the side of each headlight and pet my car warm and fat. Good night. I'm going to use a word that doesn't really describe this poem very well, but I do really like this one the way you use particular words to describe a very mundane cold metal object, in this case a car, you make it sound almost desirable, human-like. The way you crafted it, I really do appreciate. Yeah, because you, 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 know, you can love stuff like that. Yeah? You can feel a lot of affection for... Um, you know the in inside and outside of a car you can you know love and lovingly um polish it clean it make it look really nice do you enjoy driving frank um yes i do but i'm not a very good driver i get distracted um <laughs> this is this is absolutely terrible and so i will deny this but um my favorite activity driving used to be playing the harmonica so i would uh, i would <laughs> i would drive move my seat forward yeah um so that i could um hold the steering wheel with my knees obviously only on straight roads but it was really really cool so you drive without your hands but with your knees yeah and play the harmonica okay it's um, not to be recommended not to be done um you know in real life have you tried this in Hong Kong as well? No, God, no. I'm not brave enough to drive in Hong Kong. You like driving, yeah? I don't mind driving, but it really depends on the type of drive. If it's a long straight road, that is pretty boring. But when the road has many corners and bends, it is really fun in a good sports car. Yeah, exactly. And if you've got a really poor sense of direction, which I have, then it's a bit onerous. <laughs> You just mentioned that your sense of direction isn't great. I never knew this, Frank. Why do you think that is? Mm, it's a really good question. I used to tell myself it was because my ancestors were very settled and civilized and didn't need to travel um, very much or very far. Um, it's probably just some genetic deficiency because it's, uh, it's clearly not very useful. <laughs> How is this so? Because you have such a great memory is it that you don't see this as important and therefore you don't remember the directions? Well, this I've tried that. I've tried that. 
Um, absolutely. Have um, actually the only place where I had a really good sense of direction was downtown Seoul in Korea. For some magical reason, I knew where I was going all the time. But pretty much every other city in the world, I get confused in a heartbeat. Is Seoul the only city you don't get lost? What about Beijing and China that you frequently travel to as well? I intentionally get lost in Beijing. I just don't like it. It's just such a heartless city. The streets are all so wide. You never get a proper neighbor. It's kind of a weird city. Just don't like it. You've never been to the Hutongs, so you only stayed on the main road in Beijing. <laughs> Actually, in Beijing, I never walked. I, the, the first time, first time I went there, um, um, I was uh, running a, a school, and um, the, there was a local guy. Actually, he was a Dutch guy, um, and he said, "Never." Take a train or a bus or walk in Beijing. Always take a taxi. And I thought, okay, Edwin, you're the local. I'll do that. So <laughs> always taxis everywhere in Beijing. We are going to talk about your poetry, Frank, but I'm really fascinated by your poor sense of direction and why this is. Describe to me what happens when we, for example, would meet at a new place in a city. You really get lost and completely lose your sense of all kinds of direction. Oh, man, this is embarrassing. Um, I can, uh, I can w literally walk into a building, yeah, come out and don't know if I should turn left or right. You mean you mix up left and right or vice versa? Do I mix up left and right? No, I always know my own left and my own right. But directionally. Um, It, I just, it just doesn't work in my brain. I don't know why. It's, just, it's really not good. It, it, I can do um, quite complex mazes, you know, like mazes where you've got to get from A to wherever, some other point. I can do those with relative ease, but in real-world physical environments, I'm useless, actually. People get lost in Hong Kong as well when they use Google Maps, which I find extremely fascinating, why this happens and that this is even possible. I guess reading a map is very abstract because you look at an illustration that you have to process to a real-life environment and make sense between the illustration that has a different perspective than your actual environment. While you also have to figure out the correct direction of yeah. where both north, south, east and west is. But maps on your phone do the directionality for you. One of the possibly even more embarrassing things about having a poor sense of direction is that it may have had something to do with impaired cognitive development as a child, um, especially very young, for, for boys. Um, that um, young, uh, young boys, if they have some sort of tra traumatic event in their very early childhood, can have um, difficulty with um, spatial recognition and all sorts of stuff like that. So, you know. That's, you know, I, I like to be a victim, yeah. So it's it's not just my own inadequacy. Someone caused it, yeah. <laughs> so the Irish place that you were raised in had only one straight road. No, well, I was brought up in Dublin, um, so it's it's not exactly a small town. But then, you know, I, I left it when I was three and a half, so my awareness of the city wasn't that great. But even in New Zealand, I mean, I've got yeah, I'd get lost in a heartbeat, no problem.
let's move on to the next poem, shall we? This one's kind of strange in the sense that it was all about a relationship um, and what the relationship meant for both people in it. Um, yeah, um, because you know how relationships can be fraught. Um, you can, you know, you can feel tension, anxiety, la 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 la. Um, but then, within a good relationship, it's almost like um, you're seeing one another. You're looking into one another's eyes, and so you communicate really well, and the world becomes irrelevant. Um, I hope the poem explains it better than I did. <laughs> and it, anyway, it goes like this. It's called The Mirror. I went to my wardrobe, took out my rhino jacket, my Cortex helmet, my GI boots and put them on fire. And looking into the black marble galaxy of your eyes, I saw sushi fish swimming through Pellegrino, no ice and felt the smooth of your life bring my member ship to a world that only we were mirrors in. I went to my wardrobe and found you naked, moulded in a mound of figures, all form and feeling and love, and saw nothing to fight for or against. When I listen to you, there is a particular tempo and rhythm. The way you read, the tonality, the accentuation and the moments of your breath have this gentle pace. I think that um, in terms of how it's composed, the composition is driven by um, the kind of musicality I had as a child. And when I was a child, my um, mother in particular made us memorise poetry. That was kind of part of our culture and learning that we all had to memorise poetry and be tested on it. Um, and in that poetry, there's always, in the traditional poetry, there's a real sense of, um, of rhythm, uh, a, real, a real sense of the melodic, a real sense that um, the, the language has a, um, has a richness that um, is way beyond the paper, if you know what I mean. You mentioned that you have been writing poetry from an early age and that your mom also played a major role in the development and love for poetry. What was your poetry like when you were younger and how has this developed over the years? I wrote um, quite a bit at school. Um, it was kind of angsty stuff. It was like, um, yeah, all, you know, about those sort of issues that you have when you're growing up. Um, well, not that you have when you're growing up, that, you know, some people have when they're growing up where they don't feel much um, purpose or direction or meaning or whatever. Um, and, yeah, so I wrote then. And then there were, you know, breaks where I would not write for a long time and then I would start again. And, yeah, so it's very on and off for me. It was a very deliberate practice that you maintained over the years. Yeah, yeah. And when I, as I say, when I write a poem, I will rewrite it and then rewrite it and rewrite it until in the end I, I feel like um, it's right. Oh, 
how would you describe your current work and how is this different from your earlier work? Um, how does it evolve? I think it evolves to the point where it's a more... Um, there's a clearer sense of what it should sound like. Um, and it's kind of, I, I guess it's like m feeling like you're mastering an instrument. Um, yeah, and I, I, and and yeah, that's the evolution is that you get closer to being, I know this sounds a bit silly, but it gets closer to um, being who you are as a poet. So your voice becomes more consistent, becomes more mature. How would you describe the voice that you have right now? I'm probably uncertain at the moment. I've been trying for like a year to write a poem um, about the helicopter landing on Chung Chao. Because <laughs> yeah, this, this one's about um, the helicopter that lands and the doors open and um, the local ambulance arrives and um, someone who's sick uh, gets put on the helicopter. And I was really, really fascinated because for me, it looks like it's kind of a birth reversal. So, you know, you get this helicopter open doors, they take off someone who's dying. Um, and it's this, this huge sense of, of um, drama. It's not, drama's probably the wrong word, but a real sense of, um, of just, I don't know what the word is, awe. Because um, you have these, um, the, the props just making huge sound, the sea, you know, rippling, um, the people in the cafe just silent because you can't talk. Um, and um, there's a helicopter and there's someone who's dying being put into it and then the helicopter goes away and it's really, really, really beautiful but I can't get towards finishing it yet. I, I struggle with all poems but this one has been really troublesome because... Um, I'm trying to express it in a way, which I think is what um, um, people do when they write poems, trying to retain a very, very clear um, respect for the meaning um, and not letting the words get in the way of that. Um, and if you, don't, if you don't manage it really well, then... Um, the words can look forced. Um, they can create a, a, a rhythm or, or, you know, a rhyme that looks artificial. When in fact what you want to do is express it without words getting in the way, if you know what I mean. Talking with many artists and creative people, I noticed that everyone appears to have a different routine how to begin and how they begin a new piece of work. Some find it extremely difficult to start with a blank sheet. How do you undertake your new body of work? Okay, um, that's easy to answer. I'm really lazy. I'm, re <laughs> I'm really lazy with... Um with, with poetry, except when I've started writing it. So um, I never force it. Absolutely never do, ever. Um, I, um, it's, it's got to come. 
you know, uh, uh, there has to be a moment, a sight. Um, like, for example, I, I um, wrote a, a poem about um, a guy in Upper Lascar Row, an old guy. I've got it here, actually, if you want to hear it. Um, and it was about this old guy who's... And it was... I loved it. I really, really loved it. So Upper Lascar Row, they've got um, lots of genuine antiques and then they've got lots of other things that are not antiques at all. You know, they've been well buried for you know six weeks or two months or whatever, and then resurrected and, and put on on the street. But um, they've all got at least a um, pretense, a semblance, a veneer of being like they are authentic. And there was an old guy there, and he hadn't got that yet. He had um, this little shack, and um, he had literally rubbish, <laughs> you know, bits and pieces of this and that on on his um, on his little desk, and a, a, a piece of green plastic. And he was very unpopular with all the stallholders. They were, you know, they would kind of like. What's that guy doing? Really, what's that guy doing? And um, I figured that, uh, you know, he would sit there. He wouldn't talk to anyone. He would kind of look, smoke his cigarettes, look, and then move his hands occasionally, and that was it. And I, I found him absolutely fascinating. And then I, so I wrote this. Before you read your poem, I noticed there's a little black and white image next to the poem on the sheet that you hold in your hands. What can you tell me about this picture? Okay, um... The, the, gosh, rubbish, um, covered by a bit of plastic. Um, but actually this one here is not really doing justice to the guy when he lived here, it lived there because he died. Um, and then there was a period of time after his death when um, it actually just became rubbish. He had, he did look like he was endeavouring in some way to be a man sitting at a table with stuff. Um, this is, you know, table-less. Yeah. So it's called Becoming an Antique. And it's dedicated to the very old man with the stall on Upper Lascar Row. The eyes and the hands moved. The eyes moved more. The eyes looking. A keen, dying observer leaning out a window, living by a table of ordinary ageing accretions, moving slowly towards antiquity. And thinking he would rot first, he built a coffin, draped with green plastic, covering a collection of the definably ordinary rubbish of the recently old and hoped for an ageing under the coffin's cloak that would morph them and his life into antiquities. Again, with this work, I love the way you describe the rubbish and use words to describe it with so much care, attention and in such detail. Yeah, I was kind of like, I was thinking that he thought that they were beautiful, you know? And he was, he was kind of... Um, covering himself with the veneer that other people had in the same street. He was getting it wrong, obviously. But, um, yeah, it was just, I felt for him a little bit, I think. In fact, what I remember, what I noticed when I came to Hong Kong, were the rubbish collectors in this city. Rubbish collectors 
sound a bit demeaning and belittling, but in Hong Kong and of course all over the world, the collectors of rubbish are really part of daily life. You see them walking continuously through the streets of Hong Kong with their metal trolley that they have to push manually up and down the steep hills. Isn't there? Yeah, it's gorgeous. It's gorgeous. I, I mean, it, it's one of the things that I really, really like about here. And it's, um, I, you can see with the, you know, the little trolleys with the, the blue wheels. Um, people will collect rubbish, bags of plastic. Now, in a lot of countries, you totally would not be seen dead carrying rubbish like that. You'd have to be like, oh, my God, my life is really bad. But people do. For their livings, their life, livelihood, they carry rubbish around the streets. And they don't look like um, they're doing anything that's terrible. They look like, this is my job, and I'm doing it. And I know how to stack those rubbish bags. And I know how to wheel boxes from one shop to another. And I know how to sort you know, bits of plastic. And I've... I just, I really, really like it. I think it's just amazing, that sort of egoless um, involvement with work. Like, you've got to work. You know, and if you work, it doesn't matter what you're doing, you're working. I really like it. I think it's wonderful, strangely. <laughs> There's no brakes on those trolleys, have you noticed? <laughs> you can be on a 30-degree incline and there's no brakes. I see that you have one more poem in your hands, Frank. <laughs> you may not like it. Um, and it's, it's called Southern Fall. Um, wrote it in Beijing in 2001. Um, and so I was living there. And um, my wife at the time um, was living in New Zealand. Yeah. And um, it's a useful expression at the time. So um, this, is the, this is the poem. And um, it was about, like, us. And now that I've gone north and my face with age goes south to join other parts in their southern fall, the summer of my life, my wife, too, falls south. Our faces age sometimes without the careful crafting that a perfect life leaves. We age with the studied strokes of a sculptor's shaky desire. And blessed be our human bits made with marks of work and love and laughs and foolishness. The poems you selected today give me sense that you are very observant with your surroundings, how you describe daily activities and how you appear to attach emotions and feelings to ordinary objects and situations is really fascinating. I, th I think so. Like I'm working on one at the moment that um, is taking a bit of work and it's about, um, once again, and I apologise that it's not on Lama, uh, it's on Chung Chao. Um, and it's a wall that's got, um, it's kind of a um, off yellow wall and it's got um, dark rust markings coming down it. And above it, it's got a, um, a hurricane fence. And, um, yeah, it looks, it looks I, I think it looks really amazing. 
um, and I'm trying to um, write a poem about. And it's really tricky, like respecting the meaning of what you see without overtaking it. Do you know what I mean? Otherwise you kind of like spend your whole life living in metaphor and don't see what you're actually seeing. Um, but I like ordinary stuff. Have you tried other mediums to express yourself other than poetry? <laughs> uh, I have tried to um, uh, sketch. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. And um, I think the closest I got to anything that um, was recognizable was a shoe. I managed to sketch a shoe. But um, yeah, my visual talents are um, minimal actually do you think and believe art needs to be recognizable because how will you describe the difference between a rhyme that is very recognizable and a poem that's maybe a little bit more abstract what is then the difference between art and not art if you feel that art needs to somehow relate to the physicality of the object of what you actually experience um, I think the the difference is, um, and this is really tricky, really. Um, I think um, if if a poem's good, if it's good, um, the more you read it, the better it gets. Um, if a poem is um, um, simple, and I guess that kind of um, answers the question already. But if um, a poem is just a simple matter of, um, you know, bits of rhyme, after a while the brain tires of that. It goes, okay, I've done that. Um, I think good poetry, um, like, you know, the a poem I particularly like, which is the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it's really, really nice. It starts, let us go then, you and I, when the evening is spread out against the sky, like a patient etherized upon a table. And then it goes on. It's really, really nice. And I've, I, I think I've memorized it. It's, I don't know, it's really, really, really long. Um, for me, it's really, really long. But um, every time I read it, I think, oh, that's interesting. Because um, there's, there's depth to it. There's, um, there's bits for your brain to, to play with. I think good poetry is like an elegant Sudoku. You know, you, um, it, bits move around. The words move around, they get more meaning. How you describe the features of a great piece of art can be applied to many other domains of the arts. I agree that art is ambiguous, has a level of complexity without being overly complicated. Art to me has a multiplex of interpretations. So to me, great art needs to invite you to think and delve deeper yeah. and invite you to explore further. I think so. And I think um, um, the, the human um, impulse for art is, I, I think, fair to say, is DNA-driven. We, we have... Um, evolved um, artistic expression and artistic response. And there's, I don't think, any human on the face of the earth that doesn't feel a sense of peace and awe and um, expansiveness when they look at a sunset 
or when they look at a, um, a, a cloudscape. There's a tremendous sense, and it is exactly that. There's, there's no linearity. There's no clear definition. There's, there's um, kind of miraculously different shaping and colours, and you can just look at it and go, wow, and never tire of it. People don't go, well, actually, I did my uncle and aunt and told me that. Because <laughs> it's really beautiful where they live. And I was going, like, Uncle Michael, this is really beautiful. And he goes, ah, oh, no, Frank. You know, when you've seen it a thousand times. But um, I think that there are um, things that are beautiful and that whether they make, they, some of them make you think, I think that's part of it. I think that the most important thing is that you respond to it um, on an aesthetic level as a human. You go like, wow, I like that. I think it's that simple, possibly. The other thing I like to address and what intrigues me as well is the form of the spoken language. English is not my first language and to me language is extremely complex. For example, if I were to give a child a pencil, the child would express without too much effort. With spoken language, at least for me, there is a more deliberate practice that you need to be able to master before you can get to the level of poetry. Again, I'm just speaking for myself, but I found it therefore not possible or at least very hard to create poetry because English isn't my first language, although I do enjoy listening to contemporary poems. Yes, for sure. Um, and because my native language is not, um, is not um, visual arts, I would struggle to draw a shoe. Um, <laughs> and that's that's just the way it is. I think that um, you know, probably for hundreds of thousands of years and longer, you know, people would doodle. You know, they would draw things in sand, or you know, they would create things artistic. I think it's uh, it's uh, an impulse. I think that um, in terms of poetry, I think there are commonalities in poetry throughout the world. I think that they all tend to have rhythm. Um, they all tend to have some sort of um, visualization. They tend to have some form of rhyme, and that, that's quite normal. The fact that you can't do it as a child is is um, neither here nor there. When you look and observe a painting, sculpture, music, you may not entirely understand it, but it appears that across cultures there is an immediate response to it. With poetry, this seems to be different in that you need to understand the meaning of language, spoken language or written language, at a very high level and seems to be more reliant on a particular cultural context and understanding. You're absolutely right. Um, and... Um but but the, I, I you know I've got no issue with that. I'm quite happy with the fact that most people have got no bloody idea what I'm talking about, and that's fine. <laughs> because you know if I look at the various forms of of a poem as it evolves, I would look back at the first one and go, "Oh my goodness, what was that?" Um, I think you're right. The visual arts are um, much more um, immediate. I think our brain is designed um, to be predominantly visual. 
I think we um, process the world in a way that is predominantly visual. I think um, so visual arts are more significant, if you like, for humans um, than something like poetry. Um, I think to develop poetry, you've got to be really bored. Yeah? You've, got to, you've got to have some sort of ancestral cave where you can't get out and you, know, you don't have anything else to do and you go, okay, let's just um, play with words. And, uh, and I think that's really, really, I think that's a gorgeous thing playing with words. Maybe I'm a little bit unfair because the more I think about it and reflect on what I just said, it seems that poetry can, of course, have visual and auditory impulses as well. We just witnessed this when you were reading your poetry. Your voice and the deliberate intonations and tempo you choose makes the experience of your work very unique. I think it was forgivable 100, 150 years ago, more, um, to have just poem, to have just words. But to me, that's, uh, what is that? It's like, um, you know, fries without salt. Um, why would you have a poem that was unsupported visually um, if you could support it visually? And I think that was um, one of the reasons that... Um, I worked on that poem with um, um, that video poem with Chris Norman, where we had um, we talked a lot about um, the dock and what it looked like, and it was really really nice. I loved it because uh, he had his a visual narrative, um, and then I had a um, poetic um, or a, a kind of a word driven narrative, and then we kind of um, danced around it. So together they came in, into one thing, but. Yeah, often I think that unless a poem is particularly good, that it needs visual support. I know that you love memorizing poetry. Why is that? I I do have a like a hobby of memorizing poetry, um, and um, and then I I just get right into it really. Um, I'm not. I'm not saying that I. I'm not right into my own poems when I, I read them, but um, it, it's something about the fact that um, you know if you memorize a poem, then you you can't you can't put an a uh in there when there's a the. You know what I mean? You can't put in a minds um, when the when it's just mine. Um, so you have to get every single part of it right out of respect for the poet. Um, and so there's a lot of recitation that goes into getting a poem right. Um, you know, I don't know how many times you have to say it in order to get it right. And so then you get into a, um, the zone when you're repeating it. You're kind of just living in the words. Um, I really, really like that. I think it's the tradition. Because, um, you know, as I say, my... Um, as part of our family culture, that you had to memorize poems, um, and um, and that on that's on my mother's side and my father's side. Though actually, strangely, on my dad's side, um, the family doesn't seem to get in be into poetry very much. And actually, now <laughs> the next generation, um, as in my generation, um, there's not many people who are interested in poetry. But my dad was, and my mother was. But my dad wrote, and. Um, 
one of the things I really like is to, to memorize some of his poems. Um, and so they're really, really cool. But um, it's, a, it's quite an, a different process when you're memorizing a poem because it's hard work, you know. It's, it's not just a, it's not a, a gift. You actually just have to do it again and again and again and again to get it right. And then when you've got it right, then it's bliss. You mentioned your mother. What was her influence beyond that she made you memorize poetry? Yeah, mum was, was um, much more about um, teaching us um, poetry rather than writing it. Um, and dad um, never taught us any poetry, but um, he wrote it. Yeah, mum would make us memorize all sorts of stuff as part of the um, the tradition of your life. Of course, you know, we had to memorize stuff. We had to um, learn songs <laughs> and sing them publicly, um, you know, go into debating competitions, all that sort of stuff. But that's um, the very kind of, um, yeah, that was just the O'Reilly family tradition. Describe to me the debating practices or competitions that you just referred to. Every night after dinner, yeah, um, my, my mother would say, okay, tonight's topic is, and you two will be agreeing and you two will be disagreeing. And then we'd have a debate. Um, and then mum would judge it. She would go, um, you, two, you two produce the best argument, so this team has won. And um, she did that a lot. And then um, when I was at school, obviously, um, there were... Uh, Almost no one else had had mothers who made them <laughs> do debates at dinner. Um, and so we had um, school debating team. So we used to have debates and, um, you know, try and um, win against the girls' schools and things like that. Now I understand why we always end up in a debate when we meet for a drink. You never told me this, Frank. Um, I'm always get unconsciously dragged into a certain conversation and discourse. It's it's difficult because um, I I was talking with a, a friend, no names, no scandal, recently, and um, he was espousing a um, a particular set of beliefs about something, and um, and then he's my friend, yeah, and um, I felt myself going, okay, let me just take you down here. <laughs> <laughs> and and so and so I was using these classic techniques, which was like, so um, am I correct in assuming that you're saying la 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 la, and then the other guy's thinking, oh, what's happening here, <laughs> and he's got to say yes or no, or he's got to rephrase it, and then you go, so you, so that means you're saying this, and and so you've basically taken a a normal conversation exchange and turned it into a ledger. Um, you've said this, which equals this, therefore this is the outcome. Therefore, you can't be saying this because it's contradictory. And it's, um, it's on one level it's really weird, but on another level it's absolutely fascinating in terms of um, digging into truth. I did observe, but never really mentioned this explicitly, that you appear to follow a Socratic format when we talk over a drink. Are you doing this with everyone? And do you have any friends left? <laughs> no, I do not, actually. Um, I, um, I really, really, really enjoy um, um, conversations with you. Absolutely. They're, um, they're elevating. Um, and you're one of the people that you can talk to and um, just feel like there's, there's no limit 
of what you can say and how you can say it because you're going to run with it and um, critique it. But um, there are lots of other folk that you, you can have conversations with and they will get upset, they'll get angry, they'll get dismissive, um, they'll, they'll think, ah, whatever. Um, but, yeah, I think um, that idea of exchanging ideas, like um, the arena of ideas for words, I think is culturally very, very important. Um, and I think it's particularly important because there is an aspect of um, most human cultures where people can say any sort of nonsense um, without evidence. They can assert anything that they want. And everyone will go, yeah, 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 it's good, I like it, yeah, yeah. And no evidence. Um, or, you know, you get perhaps extreme um, positions in some countries where people think that they've got a God-given right to an opinion. They don't think that they've got any need to justify it, to provide evidence or logic to um, support it. So, yeah, I think um, on some levels the ability to decode um, what someone else is saying and then point out the errors in that code is um, quite entertaining. The art of dialogue and debating is to me in practice that needs to be maintained and developed. You lived in Asia for several decades. What are your thoughts about debating in Asia? I, I, think, it, I think it is, I, but it, it does depend on the topic. Um, obviously, there are um, certain topics that need to be avoided. Such as? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, uh, there, are, there are, I mean, um, you can make observations, I think, on um, how um, cultures deal with ex expression of ideas. Um and um, the analysis of ideas. And I think some cultures are particularly good at it, and I think other cultures are not. Um, I think they have, some cultures learn um, an ability to kind of um, just oppose, but they don't learn the rigour that goes with producing um, a verbal argument uh, that is substantial and clear. That is quite a broad statement about culture, but let's focus on what you believe are the capabilities needed to conduct a constructive debate. Like, for example, um, um, in New Zealand, um, we used to have a discussion evening with some regularity, a bunch of libertarians. Um, and, you know, because I'm kind of like, uh, you know, I watch Al Jazeera and, uh, and Bloomberg. I, I like uh, having a broad um, um, sense of understanding things. Um, and then in that discussion, we had people from quite different cultures. Um, and um, the only thing that they had in common was intellectual curiosity. And that's different from um, intelligence. Um, I think you can be intellectual without being intelligent. Um, and some cultures like intellectuals. They like people who can express and elaborate um, ideas, and they're quite comfortable with that. Other cultures are uncomfortable with it. They only like the things that are um, um, practical um, and produce solid outcomes and um, don't disturb systems. Other 
you know, like the, um, you know, the Greeks um, were very big on um, using anyone being able to use logic to destroy someone else's position. Um, and that's absolutely wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. Other cultures, like, you can't do that. You cannot argue with your boss. Um, you can't have a strong disagreement with uh, a current system. Yeah, I think some cultures are quite different in that respect. You had a question for me as well. So um, within your art, um, when I see it, and I see it from the perspective of a person who likes art um, and who likes um, the artisan in the artist. Um, when I see, um, you know, visual expression that doesn't demonstrate skill, it's, you know, it's something that I kind of just go, okay, fine. But um, when I see what you do, um, I see that there's a great deal of skill in it. I don't know how you do it. I mean, I couldn't do one of those hairs, for example, and you seem to do a million on a page. And they're ethereal, um, they're um, intense, um, and um, camouflaged. Because I think that it's intentional. I think that um, you've got a lot of, um, in, in the art, and I haven't seen all your art, obviously, and the art that I've seen, um, I see um, the beauty that's expressed in um, the rigour of your, your drawing, your sketching. Um, but I see also within it a um, desire to say there is more than this and you need to go further than this. I really appreciate your extensive description and this is what I understand the question is. I recall the many conversations we had about art and in particular, do you need to be skillful and master a craft to be an artist? Or can you create art without mastering a craft? You made a suggestion that conceptual art isn't art because there's a lack of craftsmanship. Depending on how you describe craftsmanship my argument is that conceptual art requires the craft of thinking it is a deliberate act of practice and creating new thinking and viewpoints conceptual art can be difficult to understand if your perspective is that art is about the physicality alone however if art is about both the physicality and the conceptuality or the thinking which isn't physical but instead happens in our mind, then conceptual art is art as well. The fact that conceptual art isn't physical and you can't always see it uh, in our actual environment with our senses does not exclude it as being an art form. Conceptual art to me is as much part of the arts as sculpture and painting. It may require a different approach to understanding because you have to rely on your thinking more than your eyes and the physical observation of it. My personal work is a combination of the physicality, craftsmanship and shifting perspectives of 
the way we are thinking um, in response to the digital world that we live in. It plays both with the deliberate and indeliberate, undeliberate practice of using a ballpoint pen because many ballpoint pen strokes are beyond my control. There is this play between planning and working with the unexpected and responding to whatever happens. My objective isn't to create a perfect outcome and instead I work with the emergence while I am working. That's why I hardly tear apart my work or throw away my pieces because they aren't good enough. No, and why would you? There's so much work in it. And, you know, it's, there's a, you know, a, a variation on an artistic expression is still artistic expression, yeah. Well, what is, can I ask you, what is, what is your impulse? Um, I mean, it, to a certain extent, it must be much more deliberate, yeah? You can't just, um, or can you, do you visualise your sketches or your, your ballpoint works before you do them or while you're doing them? How does that work? I research and plan quite a lot before I start. I read, browse the internet, look at books, photography, go to exhibitions. And like yourself, I observe my surroundings. I collect and absorb consciously and probably probably most subconsciously all these different impulses. What I grapple most with is the uncertainty with what I have in mind and the reality of what I see and put on paper. When is something good and what is good? Is good something like okay or is it shit or terrible or amazing? What do all these terms mean? What really is good to think that it is finished? Because to me, my work is never finished, nor is it perfect. Yeah. So, you, I mean, are you wrestling with um, yourself producing something and what other people think about it? I mean, there is a, a difference, isn't there? For sure, there's a massive gap between the perception and viewpoint that I personally have and those around me who see my work. This gap in experience and experiencing is what makes art so intriguing because everyone will have a different observation and viewpoint. But I'm not really concerned what other people think about my work. Of course, I appreciate feedback and do not disregard this. But my objective isn't to please the eye of others. Okay, even though you must, yeah. Why? Um, because those other people have, to a greater or lesser extent, defined what you perceive art to be. Yeah? If you create art for someone else and it is commissioned work, yes, you have an audience and therefore it makes perfect sense to take into account what other people expect and how they may perceive your work. That is perfectly fine. My purpose of creating the work I do, my artworks, and we are referring to my ballpoint pen pieces, is that I enjoy the process of creation. I enjoy this very deeply, and it is an act of self-expression without having to think what other people think about this. 
The reason why I say this is that art to me is very personal and I do not intend to amass a certain audience. And therefore, with all respect I have for other people's opinion, I do not seek confirmation or approval of others, whether it is good or bad art. Yeah, I mean, I think those are those are um, those are really really important um, because um, as an artist, um, you must be endeavouring to express something. Um, you must have your own sense of what the quality of that expression is, and therefore, there's you know there's always a difference um, between what you want to express and what you actually do express. And the closer you get to your ideal expression, the better you define that as being good art. Um, and that's you, you know. That's kind of like um, the artist, and that's a that's an absolutely wonderful place to be. The person who is the artist, it's gorgeous. Um, beyond that, of course, you've got the public perception of how much they value um, what you've produced, and you've got no control over that. Yeah, agree. I have no control, nor do I want to control how other people look at my work. But the reason why I do my personal work or my artwork is because working in business and with money requires constant approval from others. Making money relies on your audience. Without people buying it, you don't have a business. So you need constant. You need to constantly care what other people think, and to a certain extent rely on their approval and acceptance of your ideas and behavior. Art, on the other hand, is different for me. Art is very liberating because I do not need to seek, nor do I need to seek approval from others. I create my work because I can and because I enjoy it. What I appreciate about your work is that I feel there is a sense of independence in this as well. You don't make it to sell it, or to seek approval from others. You make it because you really enjoy it. I feel that you create your poetry because you are passionate about it. There is no deadline. You work at your own pace and you work on your own terms. And I think it's also incredibly important for, for humans and human culture generally that we have artistic expression. I think it's vital. And they, you know, the function of of, um, you know, socially available art, which is like what everyone else does, is that it tends to raise your own expectations of what it is you could achieve in artistic expression. And that's also really, really good. Um, but that does not mean that your particular um, piece of art um, needs to be approved to be good art. It's kind of like um, the most important thing is that the person is an artist. Um, and then, you know, beyond that, God knows what the, you know, the, the, I, the current ideas are in relation to what's good art and who wants to buy it. And more importantly, who is the person who wants to buy it? And that will define it. capacity to self-reflect on what you do and question it is a skill that can be developed and needs to be maintained. 
talking and reviewing uh, with others, of course, is very helpful because it offers or it can offer a different perspective and viewpoint. A good artist does consider multiple viewpoints, options and alternatives, which is, and of course not always, part of the emergence of great art. And that's why considering the multitude and depth of perception, this process really takes time. The artists I appreciate have the ability to see through different lenses and understand different perspectives. And therefore, an outsider's perspective isn't always helpful to further develop the art if it does not offer a new perspective. Again, this really depends on the individual artist and the quality of their dialogue they hold. Oh, yeah, it's not. Um, I, don't, I don't think it is. I mean, I think it's, you know, um, in terms of changing or or amending your own perceptions of, of what your art can be, well, then that can be useful. You know, critique is something that none of us like, and it's hugely beneficial. Um, hugely beneficial when people critique you as long as, you know, you don't have a gun handy um, for, for the, the response to critique. So I'm not saying that the best work is created in a vacuum, but criticism and working towards a foreign audience isn't a guarantee for better work. To me, there is no causality between the two. However, my personal experience is it does help to talk about it and review it. To engage in a dialogic conversation with others is very helpful. So art is not only the practice of improving the physicality of the craft, but art also lives within us in terms of thinking. Just the purity of thinking is a craft, and that's why I mentioned previously that conceptual art, including academia, philosophers, and other great thinkers, can be artists. The ability to create new ways of thinking, exploring new ideas, and articulate those ideas can be art as well. Yeah, I take your point. Yeah. Absolutely. I think philosophers are uh, vitally important um, um, in, in terms of our view of ourselves. Um, at, the, at, this, at the same time, um, I think, you know, philosophy has to be in perspective here. I mean, <laughs> you know, um, we can get um, terribly concerned about um, how good things are, how clear our thought processes are, um, you know, how good our understanding of life is. We can get very rigorous, um, and that's okay. But every now and then we do need to remind ourselves that we are animals, you know, <laughs> that we are a, you know, an evolutionary outcrop on, on the face of the earth, that we've got all sorts of strange little things about why the we view the world the way we do. And um, I think it's just really good um, for people, including philosophers, to get humble every now and then and go, actually, I'm just um, an animal expressing what I can in my particular way um, in terms of philosophy or life. Yeah, sometimes you can take philosophy far too seriously, I think. Mm-hmm. 
that was a fantastic conversation, Frank, and I think it's time to have a drink while the sun on Lama Island is still setting. Yeah, likewise, likewise. Loved it. Thank you for listening to this week's episode with poet Frank Dugan and the poetry we discussed in this podcast can be found on my blog. That's it for this episode of The Last Supper Talking Arts. Please consider to support this podcast by following it, leaving a comment or by sharing it. You can find more information on my website www.oscarvenhuis.com and also on my Instagram and Twitter feeds at Oscar Venhuis.